Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Part 2 of 5 of The Elephant in the Bedroom contains strong language, adult themes, and drug and sexual references. So strap in. So, I'm at this party. It's a sweaty night in Brisbane. The mood is high. I'm drinking with my cousin's friends. Scientists, psychologists, and people with multiple PhDs. I get into a conversation with a behavioural psychologist with a scruffy, gingerish mop and flip-flops. He's cute. But it's what he's saying that is kind of blowing my mind. Okay, I may have been a little high, but still. He's telling me, against everything I want to believe in, that 99% of what drives us is genetic, embedded, predetermined by our DNA. It's just what the evidence suggests. We can all go I'm loving this conversation, but I feel an immediate sense of challenge rising up in me. He's probably right, isn't he? I mean, he's got a PhD in this, and I've got a bachelor's degree in performing in screen arts. I think that's why this idea scares me. Are our preferences unchangeable, wired deep into our DNA? Does this mean we have no control over ourselves at all? Kia ora, I'm James Rocket. And I'm Chai Ling Huang. And we're two Asian millennial creatives who happen to be best friends. And we've noticed that we share a trend in our dating lives. That's right, we've only ever dated white, white people. And we're here to find out why. For RNZ... This is The Elephant in the Bedroom. A show undressing sex, love and race. What's up? We're back. Oh my God. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're keeping that no. in. You opened the podcast like oh, we were in the 90s in a radio show. What's up? <laughs> How are you feeling after that first step? I'm feeling good. I'm yeah. feeling confused. I'm mm. feeling excited. I just described my first time. <laughs> Topical. <laughs> <laughs> Very on brand. So last episode, we started questioning whether or not uh, we as people of color, by dating exclusively white people in our lives, are upholding systems of white supremacy. And by that, I mean, are we inadvertently signaling that white people are more attractive than everyone else, right? Yeah. Are we reinforcing racist structures by dating only white people? So today, we're looking at the science behind all of the anecdotes from episode one. Speaking of science... Uh, did you ever get in touch with that PhD party guy again? Well, I sent him some poems. He oh sent me a short God. story, which was very good. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Poems, bro. Yeah, he was cute. What and he, he asked <laughs> about my, my poems. Jeez, what? Why? You've never asked about my poems, James. So That's I guess you wouldn't know. For a reason. Um, why do you think this guy affected you so much? Well, because mm-hmm. what he was saying directly challenges my belief in autonomy and free will. Mm. So for him to say that 99% of what drives you is genetic, that's a lot. So the question becomes, how much of my romantic type do I actually have control over? I think that's a good question. You know, like, is our type genetically written out? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so a theory that I've heard is that we're drawn to date people outside of our race because primal instincts are telling us that we should make mixed-race babies, like, to strengthen the gene pool. Is that... Is there any truth in that? 
So PhD party guy spilled the tea on this. He said, it's highly unlikely that we evolved specifically to choose one race over the other to mate with because when we evolved, we hardly ever came across other races because they were on other continents. So there would have been no evolutionary advantage to having racial preferences. Okay, first of all, never say mated like that ever again. <laughs> <It is> science. <laughs> but so on an evolutionary level, there's no advantage to us Asians dating white people. Okay, so that puts that one to bed. Yes, but... On an individual level, he said that basically everything that drives us is influenced to some degree by our genes. Right, and that includes who we choose to date? Potentially. But, and this is gutting, he says that there haven't been enough studies on it to prove anything. So how much of that is genetic and how much is from environmental factors is unknown. Okay, so where does that leave us with autonomy and like free will, you know, when it comes to choosing partners? Inconclusive. It's another question mark. Plus, if it is environmental factors that shaped my type, I don't know if I can control that either. Okay, well then what do we know? Apparently nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, okay. I'm assuming that there have been studies on the basics of attraction. Mm. Why don't we start there? Yeah, okay. Well, I have something else from my conversation with PhD party guy. Oh, wow. Charlene just handed me a poem. Uh, <laughs> shut the fuck up. No, Charlie just handed me a list of doctors and professors. This is good. Yeah, it's a lead. Are you scared about getting some hard facts and some data around all of this? Yeah, but it's an itch that I need to scratch, so let's go talk to some smart people. I'll warn you about something. So I, I definitely suffer from professor's disease, so if you don't stop me, I won't ever stop talking. I'll just... (laughs) We video called Dr. Mark Breedlove. He's the professor of neurology at Michigan State University who specializes in studying the science of sex. And we wanted to know, what is it that makes us feel attracted to something? By the way, how good is his name? The dude's name is Mark Breedlove. (laughs) That's the best name for someone with this job. That'd be like if I was a a chef and my name was John Cookgood. (laughs) What's happening in your brain when you're really aroused, when you're really attracted to... A person or a dessert or uh, a car. <laughs> the animal literature makes it pretty clear when we're really attracted, when we're really feeling rewarded by just looking at things, there are parts of the brain that are releasing dopamine, a neurotransmitter. And in terms of sexual arousal in animals, we know uh, there's a lot of dopamine being released in the front of the brain, a region called the nucleus accumbens, and also in the hypothalamus where the animal is seeing something that would be willing to work to get access to, to get closer to. We know that's absolutely part and parcel with the animal experiencing what, for a better word, we could call desire. It's not as easy to do the experiments in people, uh, but there's reason to think that the same thing is going on uh, with us. Right. So what does your research say about why dopamine is triggered? When we see something that we find really arousing, really attractive, there's almost certainly this rush of dopamine going into those parts of your brain. We can uh, teach an animal to really be glad when a particular light comes on, right? And so they'll, they'll find that arousal, and, and clearly that was learned. I'll bet neither one of you would think that the, that the rat chose to have dopamine being released in those two parts of the brain. That's just what happens. So we aren't actually choosing to have that dopamine released. It just happens. Mm. You don't just go, dopamine, release! Which for me feels like good evidence for like love at first sight. It's, it's just put into like a physical chemical reaction. Yeah. Or mm. another way to put it, attraction 
out of your control. As a six-year-old, seeing Marilyn Monroe on television, I knew that that she was special, right? I remember that confusion feeling totally you know, twitterpated. I knew nothing about sex, right? I certainly didn't know anything about about copulation or orgasms, but I was paying attention and I was feeling something kind of strange there, right? And that's most people's reaction is that the first time they have a crush is usually well before puberty, so it's not being triggered by the hormones of puberty. My point is, I don't remember choosing mm. to find that image of Ms. Monroe so fascinating. That's so interesting what Mark said, because I actually have my own version of a story like him. But it, for me, it wasn't Marilyn Monroe. Who was it? Susie Cato. <laughs> Children's oh TV God. host in New Zealand, Susie Cato, who is like wholesome and wears baggy sweaters. Mm-hmm. Classic James type. Are we surprised? Oh, my God. I did not even think about that. That's true. <gasps> yeah. Oh, well, it's true. That's, she's my type. That's fine. So, so anyway, what, so what Mark was saying, your body is, just has a natural response to whatever it finds attractive. But what releases dopamine into your body can also be taught, like the rats responding to the light. And to add to this, throwing in another animal-related analogy, Mark referenced a study with finches. So finches are raised and fed by their parents. So when they grow up, they'll seek out a sexual partner that looks like their opposite-sex parent, which in birds is important so that they can successfully mate with their own species and survive. Yeah, that makes sense. But there's also a study in finches that shows how you can mess with it. If we start mucking around with things and... Take the bird, say a zebra finch, and have it raised by Bengalese finches, who look totally different. Uh, those zebra finches, when they grow up, they won't be attracted to zebra finches. They'll be attracted to Bengalese finches, which, by the way, they are doomed because the Bengalese finch uh, got raised by Bengalese finches, and they're not going to be interested in mating with the zebra finch. So th- this is this is known as sexual imprinting. So love or lust at first sight does exist. But you can theoretically mess with it through sexual imprinting, as shown by the Bengalese Finch study. What would the human equivalent of this phenomenon be? It's probably to do with who was around you, like who you saw when you were a kid, right? (gasps) Susie Cato. No! (laughs) I watch Susie Cato on TV every day. Like Every day before school, I would eat my cereal and watch Susie Cato on the show, You and Me. (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. Did Susie Cato imprint onto you? Maybe. Like, I mean, if she did, it would. It's not the same as Breedlove's story. Like, I was taught to be into her, but his was just like, boom, Marilyn Monroe, Wobble Weaver. Who right. is that? Hello. <laughs> right, but also she's like a kids' TV host, and Marilyn Monroe is a sex icon. Yeah, they're different. Yeah. Yeah. So does that mean if Susie Cato was Asian, would uh, that be your type now? I don't know. Maybe. I don't even want to think about that because it feels gross to me to think that like you. You can be taught who to be attracted to. I don't like. I don't want to think that I was taught to be attracted to Esther, my partner, or you to be attracted to Hayden. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, it really takes everything romantic about like love at first sight, and like, I don't mm. know, it just makes it yuck. I definitely think that there is something kind of mysterious. I don't think it's magic. I don't think there's only one soulmate for each person, but. I I do think that most of the factors that go into the decision are outside of your conscious awareness and outside of your conscious control. 
Where are you sitting with all of this regarding your crisis about control? It's definitely a challenging thought. I don't like being driven by unknown factors. I don't think Mm. anyone does. I like imagining that we have the power to shape our own lives and take responsibility for our own growth. But is it okay for love to be a surprise or something that just happens to you? Well, let's go talk to another expert on the list and find out if humans really are like finches when it comes to imprinting. My name is uh, Dr. Michael Tai, and I am a lecturer in psychology at the University of Queensland, Australia. What are the top factors in influencing someone's attraction to others around type? Literature shows that a whole range of social factors affect partner selection, right? So um, proximity is a huge one. Uh, And so we tend to be more attracted to people who we have more exposure to. So based simply on the laws of probability, right, you're only going to be able to be attracted to someone who you see a lot, right? And the more you see someone, the more familiar you're going to be with them and the more likely you are to become attracted to them as potential friends or even something more. Not only that, growing up in a particular ethnic group means that you grow up with a particular set of experiences and values and beliefs that might make you more compatible with others who've grown up in the same way. Okay, so according to Michael, who's literally physically around you and who you're comfortable with seems to be a big part of what makes you attracted to someone, right? that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, so... If you've never eaten chicken feet in your life, mm-hmm. you're probably not going to be like, mm, yeah, I like that, mm-hmm. right? But if you oh. grew up eating it, you'll be like, I'll take three, Hold please. On. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. In this analogy, is the chicken feet your partner hated? <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's not the sexiest analogy, but... <laughs> so how does this relate to you, like, non-analogy-wise? Mm, well... My mum's side, who I mostly grew up around, mm-hmm. are white, and a lot of my friends are white, so I have good vibes with white people that I love and feel comfortable around. So Michael also mentioned that it's important that you share values with the other person. So I remember one time I went on a date with this girl. Was she white? Yes. Ah, uh, shut up. Um, and we went and <laughs> watched some improv uh, comedy, and I, I remember like laughing the entire way through of the show and then after the show I like asked her how was that wasn't that awesome and she was like oh I didn't get any of it and I just remember immediately being like oh we are not compatible this is not gonna work out no thank you I mean that's true and definitely valid for a lot of people but Mm. I also feel like I've heard this in a way that that feels like people are just masking Mm. their racial preference they'll be like oh yeah me and this person aren't gonna work because we're just too different culturally but Really, they've already made up their mind based on the other person's ethnicity alone. Yeah, without even getting to know them. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Like, the initial barrier of attraction is assumptions based on race. Mm. Anyway, can you please pass the Haydens? Sorry, the chicken feet. (laughs) Do Do you think it's inherently racist to have a specific racial preference? And to select for it? I mean, that might be a more nuanced answer. I think it is something that just reflects your context, Mm. right? And your context might be structured by uh, a white supremacist, racially stratified hierarchy. Mm. So this is Dr. Saming Mok. She's a researcher with a PhD in social policy specialising in multi-ethnic people. She's also a dope, outspoken, politically charged activist. When it comes to Asian activism in New Zealand, she's one of the OGs. 
Well, if you look at big nerdy studies of data, one of the main reasons people from different ethnic groups enter relationships um, with each other, it's, it's kind of boring, um, which is that the ethnic communities live in the same neighbourhoods. Mm, sure. <laughs> right? They work in the same jobs, they generally rub along in the same mm. social circle, same social echelon, right? Interracial relationships, dating, and families, they mainly reflect the places they're happening in and the people who live there. Mm. And sure, there are these phenomenons of like personal preference. Some people want something familiar, some people want something different, they want mm. to get away from where they're from. But you know what, to actually do that, to completely leave your context, to try out the completely new and unfamiliar, to get away, to get out of your hood, mm. it's actually a mark of privilege to be able to do that at all. Yeah, for sure. The structure of people's lives, for the most part, don't make it that easy. Aha, so Michael was saying that you date who you are around. And Zeming is saying that because the people around you are dictated by your social class, you're more likely to date someone who's in the same class as you. Right. And social class is almost always tied to racial divide, mm. meaning some ethnicities are seen as more upper class than others. And Zeming calls that racial stratification. Yeah, which means depending on your class, there could be more or less of a certain ethnicity of people in your area, which would increase or decrease your chances of dating a diverse range of people. Right. And in order to date someone not in your area, you would need to go outside of your social class, which, you know, the class system actively works to prevent by creating social and monetary barriers. Yeah, okay, so for a basic example, it's less likely that someone from a neighbourhood like Otahuhu will end up dating someone from a rich neighbourhood like Remuera. Yeah, because those rich people are too busy dating other rich people on their yachts and stuff. <laughs> That's what we assume what, rich people yeah. get up to, right? And like, I mean, look at us, right? Look at our dating lives. We're both middle class, working in middle class professions, surrounded by other middle class people, most of whom are white. Is that why we date white people, maybe? I don't know. I think I made a joke to you on Twitter sometime, like, oh, well, you obviously you ended up with a white woman because you're from Glenfield. <laughs> Glenfield is a neighbourhood where um, immigrants on the shore would go to live in to get proximity to whiteness. Obviously, I ended up marrying an Indian because I'm from Mount Roscoe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here are some stats on the ethnic breakdown of Auckland, where both you and I live and we're raised. New Zealand Europeans make up 53.5% of the population. Asian people are 28.2%, which is the next biggest group. Pacifica peoples make up 15.5% of Auckland. Maori people are 11.5%. And the other 3.4% are Middle Eastern, Latin American, African, and other ethnicities. So the pie charts that we made in episode one of Who We've Slept With should actually roughly be 50% white and 50% non-white. True. Okay, so Glenfield, where I grew up, was majority white, but it was still way more multi-ethnic than other places, and I went to really multi-ethnic schools growing up. I had ample opportunities to date Asian women, so what the, what the hell happened with me? <laughs> okay, humble brag. <laughs> also, you did spend the first eight years of your life in the Philippines as well, and I assume that there weren't many white women there? No, there were not. And that's why I don't think Ziming's proximity theory applies to me. In saying that, though, Ziming is an expert and literally has studies that prove her theory true. So how would she go about investigating something quite abstract like this? Well, she's a self-confessed big data nerd. And she was saying that if we really want to understand why we have this type, we need to break down all the variables that could have potentially led to the outcome of us only dating white people. Right, right, right. So yeah. you mean like our class mm -hmm. and our family, where we live, how we got here. Yeah, all of that. Anyway, should we start from the beginning? Of time? <laughs> kind of. Okay. All right, all right me back Challenge here. Challenge accepted. Break. 
pre-colonization, the Philippines were a group of islands containing their own settlements and societies. That all changed in 1565 when the islands began to be formally colonized by Spain and became a new political structure called the Philippines. The people of the Philippines lived under a strict class system imposed by the Spaniards, which gave themselves power over the indigenous population. Spain's naval defeat at the hands of the USA in 1898 saw them lose control of the islands to America until the Philippines gained independence in 1946. Because of this double whammy hit from colonization, whiteness has been placed as an aspirational status symbol. As a result, a large chunk of the population of the Philippines are obsessed with trying to whiten their skin, which has created one of the largest skin whitening industries in the world. In the Philippines, whiteness is equated to wealth, and this is reflected in the huge celebrity culture where light-skinned celebrities continue to perpetuate this idea. I, James Angelo Cruz Roque, was born in 1991 in a town called Laguna, south of Metro Manila, to middle-class Catholic parents. I am the third out of four siblings, three sisters, and spent the first eight years of my life in the Philippines until my family migrated to Auckland, New Zealand in 1999. My family integrated into New Zealand culture relatively well, as our mandatory English from the Philippines helped us navigate our new home. I now live and work in the city professionally as a comedian and writer for stage and screen. Whiteness being aspirational in the Philippines, moving to another country that's also dealing with effects of colonization, and working a job in a majority white industry. Did all of this go into shaping my type? Okay, firstly, your middle names are very sexy. <laughs> Thank you very much. So my full name is James Angelo Cruz Roque. And on paper, when you read that, you're like, oh my God, <laughs> sexy boy. And then you meet me in real life and I'm like, hello, my favorite Pokemon is Squirtle. <laughs> okay, so in your history, you noted the things that seem relevant to your investigation now. How does it feel to lay all those things out? It's daunting to think that when we date, we might be unconsciously seeing romantic or sexual partners through the lens of all of that. Mm. You know, I thought I was just a guy doing things in the world, you know? <laughs> no. And now it's like your historical influence is so immense. Mm. How can you be expected to just act independently of all that? Like, mm. You can't just undo the generational trauma that you inherited from the Philippines. How does that manifest in your life? So many ways. Uh, the main one being, you know, I grew up thinking that Filipino people were inferior to white people. You know, like the food we ate was weird. I felt smaller. We were literally smaller. Films that were made by white people were better. You know, just an overall inferiority complex. Mm, that's rough. Mm. Do you still think that way now? Oh, no, definitely not. Like I've, I've started to work through a lot of that, thankfully. But like, you know, as educated as we try and get, we're still a product of so many things we didn't choose. What about you? Funny you should ask. Chinese immigrants to New Zealand came in waves from the late 1800s and were initially invited to work the gold mines in Otago. Chinese men became known as hardworking, mostly bachelors, who worked to send money back to their war-torn and famine-stricken homeland. But negative stereotypes emerged as more arrived. They're dirty, opium-smoking, women-stealing, antisocial leeches, a threat to our society. Multiple laws were passed to try and limit Chinese immigration. Chinese people had blatantly less rights as European immigrants to discourage them from staying. Restrictions finally lifted in the 40s, but overseas media reinforced the tropes of the hypersexualized oriental woman and the desexualized and inept Asian man. My father, Han Huang, was born into a big family in Malaysia, where his parents settled after fleeing communist violence in Xiamen, China. Han came to Christchurch for study in 1974, where he met Glenda, my Irish-English mum, 
from a big Catholic family. Against the conservative expectations and lingering racism in mostly white Christchurch, they married and had four daughters in diverse Auckland. Han grew up as the black sheep of his family, with a love for Western romance movies, raising his kids in a liberal version of Chinese culture. Born in 1989, I was the third youngest. I grew up in Glenfield, went to a mixed-race lower decile school, and had mostly white best friends growing up. These days, the influx of wealthy Chinese students, the housing crisis, and COVID-19 continues to feed anti-Chinese racism. My parents are now separated, and I work in theater and film. Sexual stereotypes of Asian women, the model of interracial parents, anti-Chinese racism. Has any of this historical context had an impact on who I choose to date? All right, Charling, what is your gut reaction to hearing all of that? I think I'm... It's pride in, in mm. knowing that Chinese people had so much stacked against them, but they still persevered. Mm. Here in New Zealand. Here in New Zealand, yeah. yeah. And I always love being reminded how my parents were outliers and broke the mould. You're also biracial. So would you say that your contextual influences from the past, from like, are they white or are they Chinese? That's an interesting and complex question mm. because I don't identify as just one or the other. Like yeah. You identify as both ethnicities simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And it, it is a trip. Yeah. I think I've focused more on my Chinese context here because that's what I've been made to be more aware of as mm. as different. Yeah. Also your your name is like very identifiably Chinese. Yeah. yeah. But because I wasn't raised traditionally Chinese or appear that way, I don't fully relate to a lot of my full Chinese friends. And mm. I have a lot of white privilege and white passing privilege too. Mm. But if we're talking romantically, I do experience a lot of sexualized exoticism from being specifically mixed race. Oh my God. So, like, being biracial is, like, it's its own category and it makes it so much more complicated, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, where do you sit with class? I guess lower middle. Mm. But, yeah, I'm definitely privileged. Yeah, I think same for me. Mm-hmm. On that, there's something I want to play for you. Okay. So it's a questions and being brought up in our interview that it really stuck with me. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Now, the thing that I'm really interested in, right, the, uh, there's the, the question that doesn't get asked. Like, why is it that Asian men are so interested in why Asian women are dating white men, but they're not asking themselves why they're not dating Māori women? Yeah. Right? East Asians in particular are seeking that honorary socioeconomic whiteness through class mobility and class entrenchment, right? Mm -hmm. And that's about separation from poor brown people. Mm. So the interesting question for me about racism and dating while Asian is what structural racism are Asians reproducing by only dating either Asians or or white white people? Well, damn. Right? That feels like a massive bombshell. Yeah, it was. For me, it flipped the whole question of this investigation. How? It's really a big perspective change, right? It's going from why a white woman my type to why don't I find mm. dark-skinned women as attractive? Mm. Yes, because we're not just being overly biased toward white people. Yeah. We've never stopped to ask ourselves who else we're actively excluding. Mm. Like, my angle on this investigation has always been around white people and around Asian people because mm. I'm Asian and I'm investigating my own internalized racism and, like, what that is. Yeah. And I think the problem is is that I've never I haven't prioritized yeah. Maori people because I just was like, you know, it's going to be part of the exploration, it's going to just happen as it happens. But that's the problem. Yeah. The fact to that to not prioritize Maori people in this yeah. discussion 
Like we live in New Zealand. Yeah, and I think that not, by not focusing on that is is actually upholding the existing racial hierarchies in this country. Mm. That's what Zeming is saying, right? We as Asians sit in the middle of everything in terms of the racial stratifications and who enjoys privileges Mm -hmm. here in New Zealand. For example, I remember my good mate Jermaine, he's Māori, and he told me once that whenever he walks into a store in the back of his mind, like he's always scared that he's going to get profiled for stealing. Mm. And I remember thinking as an Asian guy, I've never felt that fear. Like I don't even have to think about that. That is a sign of privilege. Yeah. I feel quite awful that we've been so obsessed about interrogating our attraction to our own race or to white people that we haven't thought about other racial dynamics Mm. outside of that, especially as Toiwi, which means visitor or foreigner Mm. in New Zealand. Exactly, right? Plus, the colonisation of Māori being screwed over by the British is the root of the system that we're scared we're perpetuating in the first place. And considering who our producers are, Mm. Ruby, who's Māori. That's right, and you've worked with them for years, right? Mm, Yeah, and they're a really good friend of mine. Mm. Like, Ruby's someone I've worked with across heaps of projects which centre people of colour. So Mm. to have this as a blind spot is, well, it's shit, Mm. to say the least. So we're back in the studio, Mm. and we've had a chat to Ruby, invited them to speak about this but. Firstly, we just want to say, Rubes, that we know that you're not speaking on behalf of every single Māori perspective out there. We also know that you're on your own journey with this and, you know, don't have all the answers if that's even a thing. Yeah, but your individual experience is, like, still super valuable and so, you know, we we want to hear from you. So, everybody, welcome Ruby. Hello, hello, thank you. Uh, Why don't you guys want to date me? (laughs) That's your first (laughs) opening question. question. (laughs) Um, no, thank you for bringing me on. Yeah. I feel like it's pretty necessary for me to tell you, like, this sucks. How are you feeling about it right now? It's making me feel pretty super weird, mm. like, seeing you guys process this huge bombshell mm. for you, but now it's also, like, a huge bombshell for me. Can you speak as to why that is? I'm aware of my sitting in this room that, Regardless of being amongst two really good friends, the fear of realising my social standing as being lower than you two is so real. And I say that because you've just made that really clear that you've never considered Māori or Pacifica people a priority in this conversation. Yeah, and I can imagine as friends that our our ignorance is almost what makes it even more painful, right? Yeah, Yeah. it's a gut punch. It's Mm. got me thinking about my own personal tie to this, that... I've only been with Pākehā people too. That's Mm. why I'm doing this podcast in the first place. Mm. So it's actually like a double gut punch to sit here and realise not only do I not find my people like viable romantic options, Mm. but Mm. neither do you two. Mm. And I fully get that you two are wanting to explore your own biases by centering Asian people in this investigation. Like, Mm -hmm. I get it. But... We're sitting in the context of being here in New Zealand with mm. all the colonial shit that's happened here. Yeah. Like, Could you elaborate on that? Oh, okay. Well, uh, the British did a pretty good job of stripping Indigenous Māori of our mana, our power, by taking so much of our ancestral land. And then when we asked for it back, they're like, nope, you signed it away, lol. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> that's verbatim. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's oh my gosh, it's like any time a Māori mentions the Treaty of Waitangi, our 
founding document that was meant to make everything great and we're all meant to live together peacefully. It's just met with a whole bunch of yawns because so many people here refuse to acknowledge that the unfair power dynamics that existed back then still exist now. Yeah, exactly. They live on in shitty stereotypes, right? Oh my God, exactly. The stereotypes of Māori being violent warrior types or like lazy or criminals is so inescapable. So much so that I've experienced the most hurtful racism from the people whom I love. Like my dad, who's Pākehā, I love him. And he got with my Māori mum and he loves her. But he literally believes that Māori people have the war gene. I don't know how to fight that yeah. when it's yeah. it's my own family. Yeah, it makes it well, so much harder, It makes right? it so it's much like... harder. Like, if my own family thinks that, then, mm. of course, mm. the rest of the country is going to be terrifying and problematic. Yeah, yeah. including people who you're going out on dates with and yeah. falling in love with. Someone once made a joke about me not being able to translate a Māori word. Wait, on a date? Yeah. The caucasity, right? Like, excuse me? <laughs> Your ancestors beat the language out of mine. How dare you pull me oh up on my this? God. So, like, bringing all of that into generational trauma yeah. down with me, it, it's such a huge part of... It's, it's a huge baggage when it comes to, like, my dating life. Yeah. But right now, hearing mm-hmm. about this epiphany from you two about our differences in class is actually kind of re-traumatizing it's like happening all over again mm. and it's highlighting that it's very much alive in this room right now and that hurts yeah i can imagine and to look at the side of our friendship that sucks but this is why we're making the podcast in the first place mm. like i appreciate your care and giving me the time here but we also need to be mindful to not be sad sex absolutely just, noted no yeah. more sad sex <laughs> no more sad sex we don't want to wallow in sadness and mm. pity because you know our ancestors would rather that we all work together mm. and make things better for ourselves and future generations so let's change it and move forward So this ep was supposed to be about nature and nurture, but it kind of took a turn somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yes. And it's important that it did because, mm. like, romance and sex and dating are all fun things to talk about, but you add race into the mix, and immediately the impact and stakes of it are just so much higher and bigger. Like, it's intersectional. Yeah. This racial hierarchy is actually harming all of us in one way or another, and we all need to dismantle it together. On the next episode of The Elephant in the Bedroom... So mainstream media is one aspect of representation that has a huge influence on people, but there's another billion-dollar industry that's just as widespread with their advertising as major Hollywood films. And if we're talking media representation, sex and race, this one is the direct intersection of them all. Is that just a real scientific way for you to say porn? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you like suck all the sexy out of it. Hey, shut up. It's what I do best. The Elephant in the Bedroom was made for RNZ with funding from New Zealand On Air. The show was written and hosted by us, James Roque and Chai Ling Huang. Our producers are Ruby Rehana Wilson and Kelly Gilbride. The show is executive produced by Notable Pictures, Julia Parnell, Brett Wilkie, Ewan Atkinson and Proudly Asian Theatre. Post-production by Matt and Ricky at Evoke Audio. 
Nikita Tubrine did our theme song with additional music by Tom Dennison. Special thanks to everyone who spoke to us for this episode. Our producer Ruby, Dr. Mark Breedlove, Dr. Michael Tai, and Dr. Zeming Mok. Huge thanks to the folks at RNZ, Megan Whelan, Tim Watkin, and Tim Burnell. And once again, thank you for listening. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.